Hey, let me pray for us real quick. Uh, Father, it is a privilege and an honor to gather together this morning. And we pray that as we spend time together as the body of Christ, as we sing songs about and to you, Father, that this wouldn't be empty, that this would be purposeful, that you truly would be honored and glorified, not just in the words of these songs, but in our lives, in our thoughts, in our hearts, in our actions, God, that we would truly be seeking to honor you in all ways through our obedience to you, that, that the words that we sing, Father, would be a reflection of what's actually happening in our hearts as people who are desperate for you, as a people who have no hope outside of you, as a people who are seeking to follow you on, on the daily. And, and God, we're encountering the fact that we can do nothing without you. And so we want to praise you and honor and glorify you for who you are and what you have done for us through Christ. May that be our heartbeat. We love you for who you are and what you have done. And we give you this time. Speak to us through the truth of your word. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Hey, we're going to dismiss our older kids this morning back here with Mr. Brad in the back. Welcome to Covenant Church. Uh, My name's Weston. I'm one of the pastors and elders here. And we're so excited that you're with us today. We are actually continuing uh, in a study on the book of Acts that we have been in now for uh, a couple of months. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 10 this morning, if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible. And I'll go ahead and throw out today that this might be a, a challenging message for you. It's a challenging message to me. And what's interesting about it, and hopefully we will see this together, that the thing that will be challenging to us is also the very thing that our hope is found in. And, and so just hold on to that concept for a moment, and, and, and hopefully God will illuminate that for us uh, as we move forward this morning. Uh, you know, I've talked to some of you as we've been going through this Acts study, and I know that uh, there are many of us who have found this to be eye-opening and important and beneficial for the season of life that we are in, both as individuals and as a church, as we are planning uh, a new uh, community of believers in Shreveport, as we are, uh, in some senses, replanting what's happening here in Bossier, um and looking to the future of Covenant Church, who, which is not just an organizational future, the future of what we as a people who are followers of Jesus Christ, are called to do together. I I think the book of Acts obviously speaks to those things, but it's something that we as believers need to come back to often because Acts presents us with, especially early on in the book, presents us with an incredible picture of what the church truly is and what the church could truly be and can truly be today. And, and, and I think one of the things that is evidenced here is that the church of Jesus Christ is truly at its best when the stakes are high and when the level of challenge is incredibly high. And Acts presents us with a church who, unlike us, does not have the luxury of not being persecuted. 
And I think we take for granted the luxury of not being persecuted. And I think that we don't even realize the ways that not being persecuted leads us to spiritual complacency. The ways that not being persecuted for the sake of Jesus actually perhaps leads us to not follow Jesus with obedience in our daily lives. I don't know if you guys see that or not, but I think it's a real thing. Uh, The result, though, for the early church in the book of Acts, the result of this persecution and ostracism that they faced was some beautiful stuff. There there are difficult things, certainly, people being arrested, people being uh, murdered, and horrible things, but there are also beautiful things that take place. Early on, uh, for example, um, there doesn't appear to be what we would call nominal Christians, within the early church that we find in Jerusalem. There doesn't appear to be people who are kind of one foot in, one foot out. And, and that's, and, I mean, that makes total sense, right? If you saw what happened to Stephen a few weeks ago, then why would you even associate yourself with this unless you're truly bought into who Jesus is and what Jesus has done? I'm going all in with this. Why? Not because it's a great social circle for me, or because I feel like these are nice people, or because they've got a great kids ministry. No, I'm all in with this, because Jesus is the Messiah. Because Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and if I'm going to have any hope, it's because I'm with Jesus. And so I'm all in with this thing, even if that means losing my life. And so early on, at least, you certainly encounter some disingenuous people, but by and large, we see a church of real believers, where there's real challenge, and there is real persecution. And, and as is the case in most things in life, what we truly believe comes out in the crucible, doesn't it? What we actually think and believe comes out when we go into the fiery furnace, trusting in God. Also, another thing that happens is that the simple, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ was seen here as the primary doctrinal concern. And so what you get is this group of apostles who were most concerned that, that people were getting this one primary thing right. Jesus is Lord. That's the primary doctrinal concern of the church early on in the book of Acts. We want people to know and believe and understand and take to heart, Jesus is Lord. And by contrast, Caesar is not Lord. Because if you know anything about history, you know that the emperors of Rome were seen as being God's representative on earth. And as a result, what they said was not only law, it was kind of gospel in a sense. And so by saying Jesus is Lord, you are indicting the person that everyone else sees as Lord. The Messiah has come in Christ. He is not still yet 
to come. He has come and he died and he rose and he ascended. This is the essential, pure gospel message that guys like Peter were proclaiming on a daily basis. And this is what's basically summed up in the Apostles' Creed. If you know the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. Many of us can recite this. We grew up doing it. The controversial point, not just for Romans, but for Jews, was this idea that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the one in whom our hope is found. And so early on, that primary gospel message was the thrust of the church. And as we read things like the Apostles' Creed, I mean, we're just talking about the base foundational level of doctrinal belief um, for those of us who believe in the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. But it was a radical departure for the Jews And so those are both great things that happened early on in the church. It's kind of a real believer's church. They aren't arguing with each other over petty secondary issues. They are going hard after Jesus and after the things that Jesus had sent them to do. Where we pick up today, however, in Acts 10, things are about to take a dramatic turn and the church is going to be faced with its first really big kind of crossroads type moment. And so let's pick up in Acts 10 this morning, starting in verse 9. And I'm going to tell this story uh, slightly out of order this morning. And so hopefully that'll make sense in a little bit. Acts 10, starting in verse 9, it says, The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, and we'll explain who they are in a moment, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, "'Rise, Peter,' kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed, As to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. Okay, so we're going to start here today because this is a seminal moment for Peter, and it is a bit of a misunderstood moment as well. He has this vision that we just learned he doesn't even fully understand what it meant. It says he was perplexed as to what God was trying to teach him. He sees this sheet descending from heaven filled with all kinds of animals 
and this voice that says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And many people teach this text as if the primary point of the text was uh, to do away with the Old Testament dietary restrictions that the Jews lived under. That this was the big moment in time where God was in a very, uh, you know, incredible way saying, hey guys, you can eat whatever, whatever you want to eat now. But yet Peter sees this vision and does not immediately understand what the intention is. And even before the law came about, I mean, people have always had dietary beliefs, paradigms through which we not only kind of view the world, but view the way that we eat. We see this account not only of the Jews and the law of the Old Testament and what was clean and unclean. We see this in the account of Noah, even before the law was handed down. He took more clean animals than unclean animals onto the ark because the inference is that they would be taking the clean animals for food. They would be eating some of them while they're in the ark. And, and, and these, these kinds of things still exist today, right? You know, most of us will eat beef all day long, but when's the last time you had horse meat? And, and don't get me wrong, it is sweet, sweet, delicious meat. But, but, but why is that? Why is that? It, it's because we have these dietary conventions that we adhere to, and, and the Jews largely did the same thing. And much of this came from the law of God, but they had also added on a litany of requirements. Um, and, and they were kind of famous for this. And so sometimes people read this and immediately go to, oh, no, no, this is the point where God says we're free from that stuff. But the point is not necessarily that. Um, there's a far bigger issue at hand than what one eats and drinks. And so before we go back and, and look at the story surrounding Peter's vision, let's turn over real quick to John chapter 10, which is what we read uh, just a few moments ago during the worship time. This is immediately following the episode where Jesus uh, encounters the blind man and Jesus spits on the ground and makes mud and puts it on his eyes. Um, right after that experience, Jesus follows with this teaching in John 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. This is verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And listen, this is key. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. It says in John 10 that this teaching was confusing to those who were listening. And this is because the Jews, over time, had developed this theology of exclusion. Now, yes, God had called the Jews to be his people. Yes, he had called them to be a set-apart 
people, but there was also a serious misconception. They seemed to feel as if God had called them into a private relationship that was exclusionary towards anybody who was not Jewish by birth. When in reality, God was simply calling the Jews to reflect his glory to the watching world. And God's concern was never only for the people of Israel... But from the time God made his covenant with Abraham, the intention very clearly was that the Jews would be a blessing to the nations. This was the heart of the Father, that his people would reflect his heart and his intentions and his glory to the world. I taught a class on... uh, the concept of biblical justice here at Providence a few weeks ago. And this is a great example of what we're talking about. God wanted Israel to function as this set-apart nation, but they practiced this set-apartness with great arrogance. To them to be set-apart by God meant that they were better than everyone else, that they were more holy than everyone else, and and perhaps more loved by God than anyone else. That they were, in a sense, clean, and that everyone else was unclean. And this spiritual arrogance actually led them to do the opposite of what God wanted, which was for them to engage the work of justice. And we see this thread throughout the whole of Scripture, not just the Old Testament, but throughout the whole of Scripture. Many of us have heard uh, Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. But that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to this concept of biblical justice. And, and what does that even mean? That God wants you to do justice. What does that even mean? To you, Because in America today, most of us think of justice primarily as being a punitive thing. We think of somebody being murdered and, and the family is seeking justice for what has happened, meaning that the family wants the uh, perpetrator to be punished. And we see that as justice, and it is, and that's certainly a component of what we're talking about here in scripture. But the greater and more prominent understanding of justice in the Bible isn't just about uh, punitive punishment for wrongdoing. It is more about setting things right. Biblical justice is about making things as they should be, setting things as they should be. And that's ultimately what's happening with the punitive side of it as well. If someone is murdered and the family is seeking justice, really what they are wanting is for things to be made right. Correct? So this is the view of justice that we gain in Scripture. Um, And so when we say that God is just, that isn't just another way of saying that God is fair, because I don't think we can even make the claim that God adheres to our human standards of fairness. God desires to make things right. And isn't that the whole story of the Bible? Isn't the whole story of the Bible that we have messed things up 
and continue to mess things up, and yet God is working to set things right. Isn't this why he sent his son Jesus to die and to come back from the dead? Isn't this why Jesus will return again? Isn't this why scripture teaches that God will set up a new heaven and a new earth and that he will restore all things? It's because he is a God of justice. He is a God that desires for all things to be made right. For all things to be made new. Psalm 146 says this about God. It says he executes justice for the oppressed, and he gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. He lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves those who live justly. The Lord watches over the immigrant and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. So the psalmist describes God's work as the work of justice. And so it's natural with Israel, who are God's people called to reflect God's nature and God's character and God's glory, that he would want them to do the same things, right? Because how many times does God say things like, be holy for I am holy? What he is saying is, be like me. Do the things I do. Reflect my nature and my character. However imperfectly, pursue holiness, Because I am holy. Zechariah 9, the Old Testament prophet says, This is what the Lord Almighty said to you, the nation of Israel. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. So you, are you catching on? You, are you seeing this thread that God's desire is that they would be a set-apart people, empowered by him, sent to be a blessing to the nations? And that ultimately we learn the greatest blessing of all, Jesus himself, comes from this set-apart people of God. Notice, though, that in those passages I read, these same groups of people are being mentioned over and over again. Uh, The widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the poor. These four groups are mentioned countless times throughout the scriptures. And, And some people refer to them as the quartet of the vulnerable. People who are naturally predisposed to injustice. People who, in almost every culture, are neglected or are forgotten or are oppressed. The widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. And so you may be sitting there going, okay, but what does that have to do with a sheet coming down from heaven filled with animals? Let's look at Acts 10 again, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. So read that as there was a Gentile, a non-Jew, 
Verse 2, he was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw a vision. Clearly, an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier um, from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So immediately following this encounter, we find Peter on the roof, hungry, falling into a trance and having this vision. And then as Peter's vision ends, these men sent by Cornelius are knocking on the door. Look at verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. And so he invited them in to be his guest. The next day, he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea, Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, listen, you yourselves know how unlawful It is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. Now I hope you took note of the fact that at some point in here, Peter came to an understanding of what this vision was all about, right? He he came to see what it was that God was wanting to teach him. Look at verse 28. So the Jews, um, the Jews had actually like codified their racism and elitism. Verse 28, you yourselves know how unlawful it is. It is, it's illegal for me as a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Like this is a part of the legal code of the nation of Israel. Isn't that incredible? The very people 
whom God had called the Jews to be a blessing to, i.e. the whole rest of the world, were people that they were legally barred from associating with. And what's, what's fascinating about that to me is that God had already, long before this experience, made known to the Jews that his love and his grace wasn't just for them. If you go back to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 56 of Isaiah, it says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. Do you remember what the angel said to Cornelius? He said, your prayers and your alms have ascended to God as a memorial. But he's not a Jew. He is decidedly a Gentile. Isaiah 56, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So that's pretty straightforward, right? God is not just for the Jews. He is for all peoples. And his desire is that his house, which we aren't just talking about the temple. We're not talking about a building. We're talking about those who are his. You, if you are a follower of Christ, you are a part of his house. First Peter 2, we are living stones that are being built into a spiritual house. God's desire is that you, as his house, would be a house for all people. God's desire for Israel as his house, that Israel would be a house for all peoples. So look again, verse 28. Peter says, look, I know that I'm breaking the law just by being here. But here's what God has shown me. And he doesn't say, I can eat pigs now. No, what does he say? God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. God has shown me that I don't have the right to call any person common or unclean. So Peter preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, this very simple message that Jesus is Lord. He preaches to these pagan, unclean, Gentile people. And he makes a scandalous claim in verse 34. He says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Man, isn't that the best news? Isn't that the best news? Now, this is radical news. 
as far as the Jews were concerned. It was scandalous that Peter would say something like this because the viewpoint of the Jews was that God was partial to them, right? But get this. Peter's basically saying God loves everybody. Like, isn't that amazing that that would be a revelation to the people of Israel that God actually loves everybody? Yes, he called the Jews with specific purpose, but it's not because he only cared about them. To the contrary, God's heart has always been for the whole world. His plan, as we said, though, was that the ultimate blessing to the whole world, Jesus, that Jesus would come through the lineage of the Jewish people. This is for everyone. And the inference here is that because God shows no partiality, and because we are a people who are called to emulate God, because we are being built up into his house, that we should also be a people who show no partiality. Do you maybe see now how this justice thing is coming into the picture? But therein also lies the problem, because here's the thing. We're really no different than the Jews of the Old Testament, the Pharisees of the New Testament. We are incredibly partial people. Who are we partial to? Us. We are partial to ourselves. Who are we primarily for? We are primarily for us. We regularly consider ourselves above anyone else. We have a history of twisting scripture to validate our partiality. One of my favorite authors is a guy named Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. And he's recently written a new book called Reconstructing the Gospel, in which he identifies what he calls slaveholder religion in America, which is this. There was a time in the history of our country when actual physical human slavery was not only a reality, but it was a reality that was built on, supposedly, a biblical foundation of white supremacy. Just take a moment sometime and research the history of the Southern Baptist Convention. The word Southern is a part of that for a reason. A foundation in which Scripture was used, was twisted to support what people already believed to be true. And, and his contention in this book, and, and he's right, is that the same thing happens today. Sure, slavery is no longer legal, but still, rather than allowing Scripture to shape us, we try to shape it to validate what we already believe to be true, do we not? We shape it to validate our prejudice. We shape it to validate our partiality. We shape it to validate our sin. And the most popular preachers out there will always be the ones who tell us what we want to hear. No one likes a prophet. The prophetic men and women of the Old Testament were despised. We look back at them now as like great people, but they were hated in their time. Just read the story of guys like Jeremiah. He had a miserable, miserable life. 
And they were despised because rather than validating the people's sin, they called it out. They exposed it. Recently, a friend of mine was on the pastor search committee for a local church, and I asked him, what are you guys looking for in a new pastor? The people on your committee, which that's the most Baptist thing in the world, isn't it, by the way? (laughs) The committee. Um, You had to get the committee on committees to appoint the committee that goes and finds the pastor. Um, It's funny because it's true. And I asked him, so, so what are you guys looking for in a new pastor? And, and I thought what he said was, was very prophetic. I, I assumed he would say, well, we want a great preacher. Uh, or we're looking for somebody that has significant organizational leadership experience. Or we really want somebody who's a shepherd. Maybe we haven't had a pastor that just really loved on people or went to the hospitals and did funerals and all that. So, so I assumed that that's kind of what they were looking for. And what he said was really fascinating to me. He said, no, we're looking for someone who affirms what we already believe to be true. And I was like, man, that's like the truest statement that I've ever heard. Because, I mean, I've been a part of pastor search committees on multiple occasions, and at the end of the day, especially when you get like a (laughs) hundred resumes in, it's like, what are you looking for? Well, I'm looking for myself. I'm looking for somebody who I can place my faith in. In many respects, what we do is no different from what the Jews of the Old Testament did when they rejected God as their king and called for Saul. Give us a king. God said, I thought I was your king. Well, Jesus is the head of the church, is he not? But we say, yeah, but we want a real head. We want a real guy to be the person that we can really look to and put our faith in and follow. And so we were talking about this process. And what they were going through as a church. And it was deeply challenging to me. Because I do the same things. Don't you? I want to put my faith in something that I can see and that I can hear and that I can talk to verbally and audibly. It seems more real sometimes, and yet I know the truth. But yet sometimes I want to give myself to something that is not the truth because it seems more comfortable, or it seems easier. And I don't know how you can read the Bible and not be deeply challenged. I I, I don't know how you can read Scripture and not regularly and honestly be deeply challenged, and and not just on the action level, not not just on the level of will I do what Jesus wants me to do, but, but also on the heart level of do I actually believe this? If you have children, you know this to be true. Our kids ask us questions about things we're reading in the Bible, and, and we're faced with how do we answer when we have the same questions? At the core of all of this is mystery. Somehow, 
an omnipotent, omnipresent, all-knowing, all-powerful God spoke this whole thing into existence. I don't understand that. I don't know how that works. I don't know how he does what he does. I don't know where his power comes from. I don't know why he loves me when he is who he is. But aren't you thankful that he does? And doesn't that inspire you? Doesn't that propel you out? We live in an American Christian culture that, that I, think, I think values this concept of justice on some level. But the predominant justice issue over the last 20 plus years has not been the poor or the widow or the orphan or the immigrant. The predominant justice issue for the church in America over the last 20 plus years has been the unborn. And I would say as it should be. The quartet of the vulnerable is not meant to be this exhaustive list of people who are particularly susceptible to injustice. And if anyone in our world today is susceptible or predisposed to injustice, it is the unborn, unequivocally. But from a biblical standpoint of God's heart for all people, emphasis on the all people, it is untenable that we would be pro-life for one group while completely unconcerned about the death of another group. Those two things do not compute. They don't make sense. That we would care deeply for the unborn but not care at all about the plight of the poor. A group that scripture speaks about God's heart for over and over again. I do not understand. I don't understand how people who call themselves followers of Jesus, churches with tremendous wealth in our city, how they can turn a blind eye to the poor. How is that possible? How can we turn a blind eye to the horrible status of refugees around the world, to immigrants in our own country, that we would support pro-life candidates who also want to perpetuate injustice towards immigrants? Your care for one particular group does not validate your indifference towards another. You may be going, why is he getting all political? Listen to me. I think it's impossible to read a scripture that says that God shows no partiality and not immediately apply that to the political realm. Because politics is built on the foundation of partiality. We say amen to a doctrine of America first. 
But praise God, Jesus Christ did not come to earth and say, Jesus first. Because had he, he would have said, I'm not dying for all of you losers. And so if your lack of care for the very people that Jesus has sent us to is based on the fact that you have passed judgment on them or that you have applied a judgmental stereotype to them with the poor. I mean, they're stupid. They got themselves into this situation. It's their own fault. They had all the same opportunities that I had in life, but they just screwed it up. And so that means you're not going to help them. Here's my counsel and my caution to you. That you would be careful to judge lest God judge you for who you really are. Peter's vision opens up an enormous can of worms for the church, and we're going to see this more and more in the weeks to come. Up until this point, this had been a movement of Jewish people, and now the tables have turned. In the weeks to come, we'll see how the Gentiles continue to receive the Holy Spirit, that they become people whose lives are deeply changed by the gospel of Jesus and what he has done, that God would allow non-Jews to be called his sons and daughters was scandalous, and yet it was clearly God's heart. And so today I'm going to ask us to bow, and I think we just need to spend a moment examining our own heart. Because I see myself in the Pharisees. And I certainly see myself in the Jewish leaders of the Old Testament who said, us first, who excluded anybody that was not like them. I do the same thing. I do the same thing. And so if you would bow and close your eyes, I just want to ask a couple of questions for you to ponder in these moments. First of all, who are you for? Think about the people in your life or the groups that God has impassioned you for. Who, who do you want to fight for? Who is that? Who are you scared of? Who are the people or groups of people that frighten you? Where do you identify prejudice in your own heart? Because we all have it. What is it for you? What is it directed towards?
And how has God called you and resourced you and equipped you and sent you to make things right? What gifts has he given you that maybe you're squandering? And how could you use those resources to display his glory and his character and the very nature of his kingdom as being a place where all things are as they should be. Father, this is uh, a deeply challenging text for me. And my prayer for myself is that I would not be a hearer of your word only. And yet we know that the enemy and our own flesh and the culture of our world will jump in as soon as we leave this room and will cause us to forget and will distract us. And we pray, Father, that your spirit would implant deeply within us a desire to simply be obedient to you no matter what the cost. That we would be willing to give up our social standing or our position or our wealth or our stuff because truly you are worth it. May we not leave this place and just go eat our lunches and move on with life. But may we truly be changed by your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, that you show no partiality. We thank you for Jesus. And we recognize that without Jesus, none of us have any hope. None of us have a future. None of us are capable of saving ourselves. None of us are capable of doing anything for ourselves. And yet, for some reason, you love us deeply. And you have proven that over and over. May we trust you alone. May we place our faith in you alone. May we give you everything. In your name we pray. Amen.